I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a very, very, very warm Pilsen Community Books welcome to our featured author of the night. He is the author of this book right in my hot little hand, Bobby Blue Jacket, The Tribe, The Joint, The Tulsa Underworld. Please give it up. Michael P. Daly. As always, I am Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Jeremy Kitchen, Hello. Michael Sack, Hello. and we're going to be discussing Michael's work, and I want to start off with, you know, the beginning, actually. Bobby Blue Jacket, and this is a, this is a very long, uh, well-researched book. It's over, what, almost 700 pages. Well, the last hundred are footnotes, but... You're yeah. still supposed to read those, right? <laughs> I mean, you're supposed to read the footnotes, right? That's, that's correct. That's what yeah. I learned in college. 43. Bobby Blue Jacket is uh, a person who spent a lot of time in jail. Uh, multiple times for various felonies and misdemeanors. An obvious question is, why was this guy uh, so attractive to you as a subject? Because, you know, some people would look at this and say, well, you know, he's a 15-time loser who spent a great deal of time in the penitentiary in the state of Oklahoma. Obviously, that's not the story. So what is it about him that made him such a magnetic figure, Michael? Yeah, it's a good question and one that I kind of answer differently each time uh, <clears throat> someone asks me it. But uh, I guess I was attracted to him one off a of gut instinct the first time I talked to him because he's a uh, kind of magnanimous figure. Despite all of his wild stories, the most interesting thing is kind of uh, the way he tells them where he's uh, extremely evocative, emotionally in touch with himself, but also uh, kind of has like a very deep uh, gallows humor to the whole thing. And uh, when you say he's kind of a 15-time loser, uh, I don't know if I think about it exactly those terms, but... I do think history is often more interesting uh, when it's told from a perspective other than uh, those in power, because I think it gives a different, uh, illuminates a different side of society uh, of a time and place. Jamie, I was going to ask, um, how did you end up talking to him, getting in touch with him in contact? Was, uh, was it through the, the Larry Clark photographs? Was that when you were first introduced or was it some other, uh, were you doing research for another article? Yeah, so I met Blue Jacket uh, actually working on a different book. At the time, this would be 2012, I think. I was working on a history of Larry Clark's photo book, Tulsa, uh, which for those that don't know is a 1971 documentary photography book that uh, uh, shows the lives of various kind of petty criminals and uh, amphetamine addicts in Tulsa. And so as part of that process, uh, I had been listening to and reading the transcript of this audio recording made by Larry in 1968. <clears throat> On the recording are three petty thieves uh, all ranting about how one of them couldn't get bonded out of jail. One of the guys says, well, you should have just talked to Blue Jacket. And so that was a pretty interesting name to me at the time, uh, and I made note of that. And then I talked to Larry, and Larry was like, oh, man, he was this uh, uh, legendary outlaw, blew a guy's head off with a shotgun at a teen rumble in a hamburger stand. And I was like, okay, that's pretty interesting. Um, and so I put him down as a source to look into on this book. Uh, nothing happened. Then I came across him in a memoir by Ron Paget, who's a great poet, also born in Tulsa. Reached out to Ron. He put me in touch with Blue Jacket. I interviewed Blue Jacket, talking about the Larry Clark deal. Uh, and then at the end of the interview, I started asking about his life. And he's telling me all these stories about how he grew up in alleyways hustling newspapers, how he's a safe burglar, uh, how the whole deal on this killing at the hamburger stand was told completely wrong. And uh, 
you know, I got hooked from there. And uh, we started talking about once a week after that. You know, when I, when I first saw the title of the book, I thought Blue Jacket was a, was a nickname. It's not. I know that because I read the book. But can you tell listeners the history of the name? Yeah, a lot of people think that, but it's actually a uh, Eastern Shawnee name. And uh, it's among the Eastern Shawnee, one of the most kind of prestigious names you can have. It goes all the way back to a uh, uh, war chief in the late 18th century named Blue Jacket. At that time, two words. Um, and he's famous, actually, because he inflicted uh, the greatest defeat upon white American forces uh, ever. And that was against a general named Arthur St. Clair. Uh, and it's often uh, said in the history books that Custer's defeat of Little Bighorn was uh, a mere skirmish compared to the uh, punishment the Blue Jacket had inflicted. I kind of want to go back to something you said about telling a history from a very different point of view. Blue Jacket, as this book makes very clear, grew up... Um, it was a hard life. I don't think there's any question about it. Opportunity was limited for him. He's not uh, somebody that comes off as unintelligent, but he does come off as somebody that uh, did not necessarily get the best education in the education system that was available to him. And in fact, many times uh, he goes places to reform schools and that, and his education is positively awful, which also further seems to isolate him. And you talk a little bit in the book about how this was fairly common for people on Indian communities. Can you delve into a little bit of this? Because I think that's a really interesting thread that came into this book very early. And could I add a, just a little ending <clears throat> to that to maybe talk about what the Indian schools were as well? Um, I wasn't entirely up to date on all that history. I, you know, we talk about race and, and discrimination and, and uh, institutionalized racism so much in this country. But often the Native Americans are left out of the conversation. And um, I was really, I mean, some of the things that you talk about, especially in the book, um, Oklahoma having more languages than Europe at the time. And, you know, just the constant, you know, we all know about the Trail of Tears, but the constant, um, you know, Migration, dispersal yeah. and, and reassimilation and then dispersal. And I just asked like 50 questions. But if you want to <laughs> start with Jamie's and <laughs> roll downhill. No, well, I mean, you know, I that is I kind of had the same experience as you where I don't know if schools are different now. I doubt they are. But uh, a lot of this was new to me when I first started researching, because I feel like the the education you get as, as it regards Native American history um, in grade school and high school, at least, is uh, incredibly cursory you know, always written as a kind of prehistory to U.S. history, even though it's the at the core of U.S. history. And if the if the Native Americans wins, it's a massacre, and if the white man wins, it's a great battle. I always I always remember that from yes, uh, manifest destiny. Um, but yeah, to the schooling point. So Blue Jacket went through a series of kind of horrific educational um, experiences. The first being, as you said, the Indian boarding schools. And those were part of uh, a larger U.S. campaign of assimilation, of which the goal was that uh, most of the military conflicts against Native Americans had ended uh, by the mid-19th century. And so now uh, the United States had a cultural push to basically turn Native Americans into white Americans. And this was largely achieved through uh, boarding schools. There are some day schools and other versions. But these boarding schools, would you take tribal members, board them at the schools, and then attempt to erase... Uh, their languages, their culture, uh, their religions, so that at the end of your schooling, you would come up as basically a lower class white American laborer. And, um, you know, there people have many different opinions on them. Uh, Blue Jacket thought they were a disgrace and um, were incredibly traumatic. And 
worst of all, didn't actually produce any education for him. Also, a lot of them were founded by Christian <clears throat> missionaries, correct? Yeah, so early on from kind of like a financing history uh, angle, uh, these were largely launched by missionaries and then were uh, partially funded by the government to kind of keep the government's hands in the, in the mix. And then over time, they kind of became fully uh, government institutions. But was, the point wasn't to educate the Indian population, though. That, that didn't seem to, from the telling I, I got in your book, it was to keep them exactly where they were, marginalized citizens. Yeah, and I, well, I think, you know, like any part of history, it's made up of all these different individuals with their own goals. But I think even those that sought out, who thought they were positively educating um, people like Bobby Blue Jacket, they're educating them from this kind of, uh, I know better than you, patriarchal type standpoint where their point of view was the right point of view and it kind of then led to this attempted cultural what's called a cultural genocide that that, that actually brings up a, a good point there, there's a part of that section of the book where you're talking about some of the staff members at one of the schools he went to and i think their ambivalence about orders from above and um them knowing that it wasn't exactly right that what they were doing, but they were powerless to change anything. So they tried to help the kids, the boys, as much as they could. And it it made me think how you really, really drilled down for your research. And there, there are probably over 100 books that you read just yes, for this one book alone. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Did, <coughs> did you have a problem? Like, did it just keep growing and growing and growing? And, did, and how did you know when to cut it off or cut back? Uh, yeah, well, I have like a book buying compulsion, so uh, <laughs> yeah, it was right. both we all do. psychologically and financially uh, uh, took its toll. Uh, <laughs> but now, I don't know, I kind of just, you know, you know in your gut when to stop, which, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there was like a, a certain kind of criteria but I just worked, I kind of laid Blue Jacket's story and my interviews with him, which went over kind of five plus years of talking, formed the backbone of the story. And then I would go back and kind of, because he's lived in all these marginal points in US history, um, assuming that most people were like myself that didn't know that much about him. So then I would go back and try and paint in the context of like, why is he at the Seneca Indian School, and what was that about, <clears throat> and kind of go go from there. Yeah. I don't know if that answers the question. It but, does, yeah. yeah. And he, of course, appears at a very unusual uh, moment in history. I mean, he starts his kind of criminal career when America is changing. Uh, post-war years, uh, at, you know, a big, large baby boom. Uh, there's a sense, I think, that we get in our history of looking at it as a time of promise, and for him that, that clearly wasn't the case. And I wondered if you could just, just for the benefit of our listeners and, and people in the audience, take us through kind of a Cliff Notes version of Bobby's path to greater crimes. Because he starts out as kind of a small-time hustler, uh, trying to get an education himself on the streets, meeting other people, other grifters, other hustlers. And there, there is a J-curve that happens after he goes to prison for the third or fourth time. Yeah, so um, I guess we'd pick up, he uh, leaves Seneca Indian School um, in 1946, gets back to Tulsa where he's living with his family. Uh, his mother's a single mother. She works multiple jobs during the Depression. 
um, can barely make ends meet. And so the Blue Jacket boys, basically upon reaching age seven, have to go into downtown Tulsa and start earning for the family. Uh, Blue Jacket did a number of things, uh, salvaged tin, sold rags, shined shoes. His main kind of gig was hustling newspapers. And through that, um, he kind of first became acquainted with, you know, reporters, uh, guys hanging on the corner, various thieves. There's a great character named Tangle Eye Williams, who was uh, the most arrested man in Tulsa, uh, that was a early uh, mentor um, who's famous for saying, I'm sure one day there will be a man that's been arrested more times than me. And when that happens, I like to shake his hand. Um, and so he's kind of like the guys that started to form uh, or that were his heroes at the time were these all these kind of like wry, hustlery type characters. And so um, getting involved in petty crime then through that, he went to juvenile reformatories, um, which were completely kind of like twisted, underfunded, um, other, otherwise traumatic institutions as well. Um, by the time... And that, well, I'm just flying here because we got so much to cover, but he right. goes to war briefly. Yep. Um, 15. 15, lies about his age. Goes, goes to war twice, we should point out. Yeah. Yes. L lying about his age twice, which is a, not something that... He tried once, but he was 14. Sent back and went yeah, again. Yeah, yeah so, so he tried when he was 14, got denied, but then made it when he was 15 and went to Shanghai, Shanghai yeah. which uh, is where he uh, first did his robbing and stealing, as he says. And as a 15-year-old in Shanghai... <laughs> He would sell wares uh, around the Bund area of Shanghai to black market dealers um, and then go back and rob them after the sale happened. Um, Army found out about his age in 46, kicked him back to Tulsa. Um, he met a girl, got her pregnant, then he went back to Shanghai um, and finally came back in 1947. And that kind of brings us to this post-war atmosphere right. you're talking about. Um, in his post-war Tulsa was very much kind of like a film noir, best years of our lives, where it's like he was very far away from the uh, the ticker tape parades and kind of the picturesque black and white photography. And uh, through basically trying to make ends meet, he started apprenticing for uh, safe burglars. Yeah, he went and, to trade um, school. Yeah, he went to trade school, essentially. And, uh, and actually, a lot of the guys that taught him were the kind of the geniuses of the safe-cracking trade, were all guys that came back from the war and use their GI bills to go to safe and lock school. Um, I thought that was that made me laugh out loud. They were all going to locksmithing school so they could learn how to crack safes. Well, yeah. they're all, they were also mainly heroin addicts, as you. Oh yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like the whole William S. Burroughs type trope of the junkie thief was was actually a, a reality. Um, not Blue Jacket himself, but a lot of the older guys. Um, and so yeah, because it was a technical trade. Uh, it's something you actually have to learn. It's not just like going in and trying to rob a grocery store or something like that. And so he got involved in a, in a true culture that way. Now, that's interesting because one of the things that struck me about Bobby during this period was how young he still seemed. And he was. You know, I mean, this was a, a young man of what, maybe 17, 18 right now because he had lied about his age. He'd gone overseas. He, he already had a child, though. Uh, and he, he had, had a life that he was trying to support. Well, to, yeah, he was also trying to become a pro boxer. He was, he was trying. Yeah, he was trying to become a pro boxer. I mean, but this is this is remarkable in in that uh, he was still so young and still so uh, in a way so raw and unformed. And he would actually go back and be be caught and and be sent back for further education uh, multiple times as he as he picked up on this. And that to me was something that was really 
that was the, the point in the book, actually, to be perfectly frank, where I actually really got interested in Bobby. Because it, it struck me that this was a young man who had had nothing in his entire life, who had tried to make himself into a self-made man by doing just about everything possible wrong that you could. Yeah, I think that's... <clears throat> I, I, I see that. I think that's right. And I think it's also... Um, I think Oklahoma and kind of Tulsa, in an abstract sense, kind of remind me of Blue Jack in a way where they're very young um, political bodies and societies where they like never had a chance to grow up properly, where they kind of had to to progress in hyperspeed. Um, and I think that's definitely the case of Blue Jacket. And is that something to me that that struck me as something that would be very very interesting because you're talking about and you talked very specifically about uh, Tulsa and Oklahoma throughout this entire book as a young place an unformed kind of raw place. And it struck me that's a very kind of American story. We, we like these myths about frontier people and young people uh, molding themselves out of whole clay. There's an entire, you know, uh, religion based around Ayn Rand, you know, that kind of says that as well, which I don't think Bobby would be mistaken for, for Rourke, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that to me strikes me as something that's, that's actually very powerful and primal. And I wonder if you could talk to a little bit about that because it, it this book kind of now fits into that sort of American narrative, which is a very classic thing to write about. And I would add, too, that the photography book Tulsa kind of shattered that, you know, right. the children of our future. You know, that was a um, we didn't talk about the I guess the level of outrage that would, came out with that book because it showed nudity and people shooting dope and people posing with guns. And I actually uh, and Larry Clark went on to did he direct kids or he produce kids, yeah. kids the that movie from the 90s that was disturbing to say the least but uh very well done but uh, you know i think that was kind of a you know it's like we have this idea of these like uh you know it was that came out in 72 correct so uh, 71 okay 71 <laughs> so you got the end of the hippie era you know um manson and crew kind of destroyed the summer of love and now we're moving into the 70s and it's instead of like peace and love and acid and dancing in the streets it's you know handguns and shooting meth and or shooting speed and um you know i think it's a it's a big dichotomy and, and you're also looking at the 60s you're looking at a you know most of the hippies you know came from wealthy backgrounds um not all of them and i, I don't want to say they all did but they were in college you know they weren't being drafted so i think if you avoided the draft you're probably in a little better situation than the guys that were getting drafted. But, you know, so it's like we went to the summer of love to this, like, 70s, you know, um, and, and we're looking at two uh, – I think there's a big dichotomy between, you know, this uh, carefree, hippie, love-everyone lifestyle to these, like, petty criminals that are, you know, doing these things in shady hotel rooms in Tulsa. And I think it was a big dramatic shift in our culture. And I, I, I don't know if I'm making too much of it, but it does seem that way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the Larry's book is interesting because one, it's very visceral. All the images are really intense, but there's like a complexity and nuance to it where, yeah, it's the flip of the hippie side, but it's also, it's very specific. I mean, most of that book is shot in a guy named David Roper's parents' living room where it's like hyper-focused, um, and it's very like human where you like relate to all the people in it. It's not just this kind of superficial image. And so I guess going to your point about kind of the American myth and things like that, I think I had that in mind, but also wanted to show, 
I guess the complexity of that in that um, kind of the costs that come come about because as opposed to kind of Larry Clark characters were guys who are true counterculture wanted to be misfits never wanted to blend in and just kind of wanted to say you know f the system or whatever and, and drift off into their own world Blue Jacket's a guy his entire life is trying to pursue this American myth of actually blending in with society and being a part of <clears throat> you know what you think is like a cheesy white picket fence. And I guess that's what interests me about his story as opposed to most kind of crime stories is that um, there it's not an outsider looking out, it's an outsider looking in. That um, the, the idea of the American dream and literature in Chicago makes me think of Augie March, the, the opening paragraph. And is that where you got the name of the publishing that is, company? Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us about First to Knock? Um, yeah, it's... Uh, formed a publishing imprint to put this book out. Um, I got a background in editing and publishing books. So um, 2018, first Tanakh is that's established? Just born, yes. Okay, nice. Yeah. Vertical marketing, we call this. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I did want to mention, so too, when I was when I was talking, um, for those of us that are, um, you know, study countercultures or read about them and things, we would see the nuances in Tulsa, but for the, you know, the, the Joe six pack in in Oklahoma or in the South, you know, they would react to it differently than guys or people. Guys wearing would, a Jesus literature, you yeah, exactly. You know, and a funky Chicago socks. That's hat. what I meant. You're not gonna get the. Uh, you know, it's everyone's gonna you know the reaction that me we ain't have is gonna be totally different than like like if my mom saw those pictures even now she'd be like oh my god you know so it's, uh, it's yeah it's still raw yeah it's very raw. Do you uh, do you want to talk about the. Uh, the major crime that the book pivots on in the beginning, or do you want to leave that for, for readers to discover themselves? Uh, no, I can talk about it a little bit because it's kind of the main, uh, the first story within the book that got me started on it, which is uh, 1948. Blue Jacket uh, is about to leave for the East Coast to become a amateur boxer, um, which is kind of his aspiration at the time and uh, got caught up in a situation where his friend had challenged another boy um, to quote-unquote a beef, which basically meant that they were going to meet at a uh, predestined location, which skating happened uh, at a skating rink, and um, the best man was going to win, and the other guy was going to get you know, beat up. And uh, rumor had started spreading the day of the fight that the guy they were supposed to fight, a guy named Bill Klein, was going to bring a gun. And so word started spreading among Blue Jacket's friends that, well, if he's bringing a gun, we better bring a gun. And we better bring a bigger gun. So they got a shotgun. A sawed-off shotgun. Which was and, bigger. Much bigger. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, Klein was supposed to have a twenty-five, I think. And uh, so they stored the shotgun uh, behind the counter of a hamburger stand across from the skating rink. And... Um, as the fight, I'm kind of fast forwarding here, but as the fight begins to happen, this Klein guy has his hand in his pocket the whole time. Yeah. And so Blue Jack and his buddies think he has a gun. Um, as it happens, I won't kind of blow it because I think what actually occurred in these last moments is what's interesting and something that's kind of open to interpretation. Um, but this escalated to the point where Blue Jacket, um, Blue Jacket's shotgun shot Klein in the head and killed him. And this led to what was at the time the most sensational trial in Tulsa history um, and was probably the most life-changing moment in his life. Yeah. Well, and then you get, you, you get into detail about the, um, 
the differing opinions about what actually happened. There, there are pages and pages in the book of, over the testimony from witnesses who were at the hamburger stand. Um, is the gun still around? Uh, it is not. Oh. No. Do you know what happened to it? I mean, I, w- I was interested because uh, the, the evidence there, there was photography, um, the shotgun, the Klein was wielding a giant rock, which was kind of the weapon that caused Blue Jacket to strike. All that stuff's gone. Tulsa County doesn't know where it's at. Okay. So. Just curious. Um, which kind of added to the, like, you know, trying to study this. There is massive kind of lacunae or holes in the in what happened, where I had Blue Jacket's retroactive testimony to me. I had the trial transcripts, and then I had the newspaper uh, coverage, which much of it early on was actually uh, erroneous reporting. So there's lots of... Uh, uh, I have my own opinions about it, but there's lots of kind of fogginess as to uh, what happened and when. Well, it was like any any criminal incident. They interviewed all these different people, and everybody had a different idea. I'm not going to say exactly what happened, but from the different testimonies, people had very different ideas of what happened in that moment. Definitely, yeah, and I mean starkly different. Yeah. And a lot of that was based on also some of their own prejudices and some of their own points of view, which I think is a, a pivotal thing in this book as well. It's funny. You know what it reminded me of is the, uh, I don't know if you know, but Alan Iverson got in that fight at the bowling alley before he got, you know, before he went to the college, before he went off to college to get scholarships. And, you know, it really affected his ability to get scholarships. And he went to jail too, but there was like a million different, you know, interpretations about like what happened. He, like someone that. had thrown a chair and hit a woman. And I, I don't know why that popped into my head. Maybe because I love Alan Iverson, but that uh, you have a shower curtain. Of I do have a shower curtain of Alan Iverson. That too is much true. information, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, too much it, information. Yeah, no, I think this, the same problem faces you if you're in like a jury box today. Yeah. So it's kind of like if you're talking about a crime that occurred uh, 60 years ago, it's however doubly hard. And it's also you know uh, disenfranchised youth, both both cases, and I think that's what the connection was yeah. for me. Yeah, because yeah. they kind of railroaded Iverson as well. So, um, we have to take a quick break. Actually, this is a good place to do that. Um, if you guys would please once again give a very, very warm, warm Pilsen Community Books welcome, Michael Daly. We'll be right back, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. You are listening to I ninety four on Lumpen Radio, and today we are live at Pilsen Community Books. With the author of Bobby Blue Jacket, The Tribe, The Joint, The Tulsa Underworld. Folks in the studio audience, please give it up once more for Michael P. Daly. <laughs> Michael, just before the break, we were talking about uh, Bobby's, the pivotal crime in Bobby's life. A, a young man was killed with a shotgun at a hamburger stand. Bobby um, goes from here to a very interesting place. He's going to be now in and out of prison. Pretty much for the rest of his life, until uh, pretty much the period where you end the book. He's in his late 80s right now. He's been out of jail for quite a while. One of the very interesting things that happens to Bobby in jail, and I kind of want to start here if this is okay, he becomes very involved with prison journalism, and he becomes very involved with uh, his own education, which I think, as we talked about in the first part of the show, was largely neglected by the the kind of organized Oklahoma power structure that really was not set up to serve Uh, a disenfranchised young man uh, from a Native American population. Prison newspapers um, are are a very interesting thing. They are an important way for people who don't have voices to have a voice. 
and we've had a number of people on this show, I'm thinking specifically of Myra Case, who works with, with prisoners in Denver, in a, in a poetry workshop, talking about how so many of the people who are in jail feel like they have no voice at all. Bobby certainly developed one. He became a well-known commenter, a very recognizable person, somebody that was always called upon to speak in front of audiences. He was in a, a touring band called The Outlaws, of course. What else would you be called? Um, doing all kinds of stuff. And I wondered if you could speak a little to that, because just as that crime at, that, at the hamburger stand, at the skating rink, changed his life, what also changed his life was the power of the written word. Yeah, so maybe um, I'll back up one decade and talk about life in Oklahoma prison before there was a newspaper. Uh, so Blue Jacket arrived in 1948, Oklahoma State Penitentiary. Uh, the penitentiary had actually started out in the 1910s as this kind of utopian, progressive, uh, rehabilitative project uh, launched by a woman named Kate Barnard, who's a very uh, powerful uh, uh, political figure and is actually the first uh, female politician to be elected, I think, by uh, an entirely male vote. So she had a lot of juice, was very powerful. Um, the problem was, upon the establishment of penitentiary, the conservative legislature basically strangled all the money going to it, and so over the next two decades fell into disrepair. Um, the guards were highly abusive. Um, it was basically hell on earth. So Blue Jacket arrives at this time when it's this kind of dilapidated dungeon, essentially. Um, he then gets in a riot, is transferred to Oklahoma State Reformatory, uh, which is in the far southwest corner of Oklahoma, middle of nowhere, uh, and is an even bigger dungeon than the penitentiary in McAllister. That's the one called Granite? At Granite, yeah, it's the nearby town. Um, and so in Granite, it actually gets so bad that the prison essentially implodes, and a hearing is called where it's decided among the government that they're going to overhaul this prison. They install a guy named Joe Harp, who's a warden, used to be a sheriff, and Joe Harp has this idea that we're going to overhaul the prison and start treating the prisoners like human beings again. And so this takes the form of several uh, programs, which include sports teams um, called the Outlaws, um, prison band, uh, the first accredited high school behind prison walls uh, called Lakeside High School, a grade school because a lot of the guys who come out of the war had never got past kindergarten, and then most importantly, a prison newspaper. And so the prison newspaper is essentially like what you think of as like a zine today where they're mimeographed, at least Granite's was mimeographed, you know, corner stapled. And it would be a mix of kind of mundane announcements from the warden, what movie was going to be screening that night, um, and then editorials, which the editorials is kind of where Blue Jacket shined. And the prison newspaper came out of a uh, conference in 1870, and from that point kind of peaked in the 50s. And so Blue Jacket hit the, the practice right at the time where um, this was a national industry called the penal press, and all the prisons would trade uh, newspapers and magazines with each other. Now, Ward, was that the warden's name, Ward? Uh, Joe Harp. Harp. Yeah. Blue Jacket actually said nice things about him, didn't he, in, in the book? Yeah, oh, yeah, you yeah, love him. Yeah. yeah, and if you think about that now, a, a you know prisoner saying something nice about a warden, at least from my limited experience with prisons, uh, <laughs> they— uh, you know, they don't usually think too fondly of any of the administration or, um, of course, the guards, too. Um, which brings me to my next point. You know, we were talking about, you know, prison actually used to have a rehabilitative aspect to some extent. Uh, the outlaws toured their rodeos, right? Didn't we talk about rodeos? In so here? that's uh, when he goes back to McAllister in 53. He becomes the MC of the prison rodeo. That's correct. Um, but 
This guy uh, was going right to the top. And the book, uh, page 286, um, this is Michael's words. Uh, Prisoners produced journalism may sound like an oddity today, but at one point it was a lively publishing scene that was not limited to circulation within the walls. So people from outside the prison could... Could they subscribe, or would they be able to purchase it in town, yeah. or how did that work? So it was a subscription model. Okay. Um, largely, uh, attorneys, judges, politicians were kind of the main subscribers, okay. maybe a family member, that sort of thing. And uh, I think politicians and kind of people people in the legal profession would read it for insights to be able to comment on uh, the status of the criminal justice system at the time. Now, lest you think that Bobby's <clears throat> reform was well on track, I do also want to draw attention to the fact that Michael notes that uh, despite admitting that, that Bobby was uh, maturing and his writing was becoming increasingly potent, uh, doctors actually wanted to have him studied for abnormal psychology. And uh, there is a lively discussion on all the stuff and the medical experiments they would put prisoners through during this time. Uh, a lot of prisoners were forced to sell blood. Um, in fact, oh, yeah. Bobby did that quite often. They dr- uh, drugged Bobby as well a couple of times. So I wondered if you could just dip into that because it's, it's a little – I don't want you to get the impression that they actually started treating Bobby and his fellow prisoners like actual human beings. They still were – Partial human. Partial human beings. They were still experimenting on them in prison in a way that would be considered deeply unethical today. Yeah, so, I mean, also, Bobby's a, a very tough guy and is very wry, so it can sometimes – you'll look back and be like, oh, yeah, it was a blast – you know, and kind of maybe not colored exactly as the reality was. Um, but yeah, so this is that McAllister uh, had a notorious uh, prison medical program that uh, later in the 60s was involved extracting plasma from prisoners and then selling it to major pharmaceutical companies like Merck, et cetera. Uh, and the problem was it was run by um, essentially unlicensed medical practitioners who'd reuse syringes, um, just be generally really unhygienic, so people would die, get uh, terminal or otherwise serious diseases. Um, there was also, uh, they would test, like, consumer packaged goods, like cleaning agents on the skin of prisoners. Um, there was also kind of foggy, but various, like, um, MK Ultra style uh, psychedelic experiments, which Blue Jacket uh, said he was... Uh, took a pill once that was some sort of dissociative agent. Um, and so this is problematic from a humanitarian standpoint, <clears throat> obviously, but it's also as highly problematic um, from a pharmaceutical business standpoint because you're paying these prisoners to get them to partake in the tests. And a lot of guys were so desperate to keep getting money, they would lie about the results of the test. And so then they're misinforming uh, the entire marketplace with these allegedly scientific tests. Um, so, yeah, that's a uh, very messed up uh, little corner of history there. Um, before we uh, get off the uh, prison journalism, can you talk a little bit about the project you did with the uh, archiving of the prison journalism and uh, the work you did with Yale? <clears throat> oh, yeah. So um, there's only kind of two main books on prison journalism that have really ever been written. Um, one's by a guy named James McGrath Morris, and then one's by a guy named Russell Baird. But besides that, there's not a lot out there. Uh, so I kind of did a lot of primary research, which involved uh, eBaying like a fiend to collect old prison newspapers, uh, which like eight years ago you could get for $2. Uh, so over like the last six years, I basically amassed a uh, uh, 
four or five hundred piece library of prison newspapers that became like my little prison research library. Um, and then I'll, to fund the book, I ended up uh, selling those off uh, through the help of a friend, uh, Johan, and it's now at the uh, Beinecke Library at Yale. This, yeah. this is also the, the part of the book where, um, so you're talking about the, the irony of his reform. He's, he's getting a second chance through the system that's screwed him over. Um, he got his high school degree. He was able to go to college. And he started taking an interest in literature for the first time. Um, <laughs> there were guys running around the, the um, corrections yards reciting Indian poetry, I think. Uh, the Persian, yeah, the Persian. Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam was a real big hit in 50s Oklahoma prison. <laughs> um, Let that one sink in, folks. Which was, uh, I believe the pioneer of the trend was a guy named Edsel Johnson, yeah. who was a... Uh, I guess had gotten drunk and passed a bad check and landed in McAllister, or, or I think in Granite, actually, uh, for a year. And he was kind of a, I don't want to say amateur, but I think unpublished poet. Um, so it was just something he did and was a big reader. And uh, so he started basically making everyone hip to, uh, to mystical poetry. And this was a couple years in, and um, I think the way you portrayed it, Bobby had been kind of blasé about what his future prospects were, whether or not he was going to get out. Um, and it seemed like reading and his interest in literature renewed his interest in doing something with his life. Yeah, that's correct. And I think this gets back to your comment, however long ago, about this being another turning point uh, for Blue Jacket in the sense that, so he was tasked to edit a prison newspaper. <clears throat> but yeah, he had out never, of nowhere. Yeah, he had said... You know, I'd never even done a book report before. And so he figured the only way he would learn how to edit or write is if he read books. Yeah. And so he started reading like a fiend um, and getting introduced to certain, you know, poetry like the Rubiot, et cetera. And through that, I think he's first started to uh, uh, kind of introspect and think about who he was and think about his voice and what he could put out in the world. And uh, it was really through that process, I think, that he first got a sense of identity um, in kind of a a future forward uh focus he's he's not a shy guy he he'll let you know his opinion did he uh did he read your manuscript before it was published he read he says he did yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh he's 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 uh reads it all the time now that it's out yeah. and i think oh. uh when he he had told me he thought this was going to be like a 30 page pamphlet <laughs> and so I think he was uh, taken a little aback uh, to be, you know, given a brick. Um, but he seems very happy with it. And I think it's, uh, he wrote a pretty cool reflection on the book, like looking at his life through the book uh, for the Shooting Star, which is an Eastern Shawnee newspaper. And so I think it's been cool to kind of see a subject of a book reflect on themselves through a book oh, in kind of like a weird meta. Can you see that <clears throat> online? Uh, I don't know if it's online or huh. not, but okay. uh, I should put it on if it's not. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is the part of the show where we get the audience to ask our featured author questions, and you've already <laughs> answered one of them from a guy who has a name suspiciously similar to yours. I believe that's Bob Daly. And, and he wanted to uh, be told about Bobby Blue Jacket's development as a writer, but I think he just did that. If, right? All right, Bob. One? Covered that one. A better question from somebody named TK, and I asked for your, for your name, so I'm going to call you Fred. Fred asks... 
Is there a modern day person who you think lived or is living an experience anything like Blue Jacket, or is his experience of life completely unique? And that's an interesting question. That's a puzzler. Yeah. Because, I mean, there. I think what's unique about his life is the juxtaposition of all the experiences within one life. And that's kind of another thing that you're asking me what drew me to the project is like, his life is not some kind of classic prison narrative where it's like he made a mistake, went in, found God, and then got out. And that's like the kind of Hollywood arc but it's rather like all these, this kind of network of struggles and experiences that kind of makes it interesting. So I'm sure there's people out there having some of his experiences, but I've never met anyone that's had the kind of kaleidoscope of experiences that he's had. And probably furthermore, I've never met anyone that's interpreted them the way that he has. You're well, not going to believe this, but Mike and I know a guy. Well, we're going to introduce you to him. Yeah, he just right. whispered his name in his ear. So but what I was going to say is the, the, prison, uh, the prison industry has changed quite dramatically, though. Uh, would somebody, just, just to throw this out there, would somebody like Bobby have the same chances in the for-profit prison system that we have in so many states right now? Would he be given chances to edit a newspaper, to get a degree? Do those things even exist right now? Because it doesn't seem like they do. Um, well, first off, uh, I would not flex and say I'm an expert on the contemporary prison system, but I do know, uh, you know, there are certain kind of Oklahoma State Reformatory, which I visited, uh, is now kind of an exit facility, low, low security, and they have kind of Vogue tech. What does that mean, exit facility? Uh, basically, when you're on your way out into the world, you'll go there as the last stop. And sure. they do a lot of job training, which is called Vogue tech. Um, there'll be schools, but I think uh, the pe- people I've spoken to and my own research I've done is uh, his prison experience, especially for an actual penitentiary, uh, is quite different than anything that would exist today. You should also point out that he got parole a number of times. Correct. Yes. Which probably in, in this day and age of, what, three strikes, you're out, probably he would not have gotten. Well, he was originally sentenced to 99 years. Right. He wasn't supposed to be up for parole originally until like 30-some years into a sentence. His uh, full sentence would be still going to 2040. Yeah, 47. So. Yeah, and he had many chances to get in and out of prison. So, Correct. I mean, you know, yeah. that's probably an experience. That and that might be different now, too. Well, I'd say that's very different in the yeah. sense that he traveled to college yeah. once a week. He played on a baseball team that toured the state um, and played in a band that toured the state. <laughs> And he would say the guards are just for show. There, yeah, and there was so, a, there was a stat um, in there something like forty percent of prisoners served time outside. Oh, that, that was w- in the kind of early corrupt days, but um, still oh, later on during Blue Jacket's time. Yeah, I mean it was just a sense that, you know, you you took that as a blessing. You didn't really try to screw it up by by running away. We can't get Rod Blagojevich out. Wow, Saul spare thought for Rob. Um, this is an interesting question, too. Somebody also named Fred asked this one. Guys, write your names down, please. Really. What do you think Bobby's thoughts on mandatory jail sentences would be? Um, he, I'll, I'll abstract that a little bit and say that uh, based on his own experiences, he's incredibly, uh, I would say, leftist in his view 
on the criminal justice system where, um, you know, he, he sees it now as this kind of draconian punishment minded, um, system we live in that's basically set up to kind of destroy people instead of build them up. Uh, I don't, don't know particularly on that. You know, this is obviously, as we mentioned at the start of the show, this is a very, very large book. There's no way we can get through this entire thing in an hour. But I did want to, if we could, jump ahead to the present day, because you, you, this book is really based on your discussions with him over the last five years. He's been out of prison. Uh, he's 88, as I mentioned earlier. He's, he's not a young man anymore. Can you talk a little bit about what lessons he learns and, and the kind of the point that he looks at in his own life where he was able to leave the joint and the Tulsa underworld behind. Yeah, so that would have occurred, um, the last time he went to prison was in the 90s and he got out in 93. And around that time, uh, some people from his tribe, the Eastern Shawnee, had invited him up to the tribal grounds just in northeastern Oklahoma. And he had kind of lost touch with his, his tribal heritage um, over kind of like the middle 50 years of his life. And so through going up to the tribal grounds again, he, over the next kind of five years, got in touch with his history, um, with his family in kind of more of a cultural sense. But also, I think most importantly, kind of got a new mission, which was the more material aspects of what the tribe does, which is uh, various like social programs where he's very big into something called the Elder Crisis Committee, where he goes around trying to make sure people's houses are repaired for kind of impoverished older folks. Um, and I think those social programs combined um, with just getting in touch with his granddaughters and his family uh, kind of gave him uh, a mission, but also a sense of a trade-off where it's like, if you go out and steal, you will lose contact with these people. Therefore, I value these people over stealing. And so that kind of rearranged the way he, he looked at the world. It's interesting. And of course, we should also point out that the Shawnee and many Native American tribes do live still in extreme hardship and, and poverty. That's something that's been a constant in Bobby's life. What, is he, what does he think about that? Well, I mean, I guess he sees that as an extension of the last 200 plus years, you know, where it's kind of, this is all on a historical continuum. Um, I mean, there's lots of people in Eastern Shawnee that are very uh, affluent. It's a, you know, federally recognized tribe. They have big businesses, things like that. But as he told me, you know, there's people that still sleep on dirt floors and um, the, there's, yeah, the kind of, there's the full economic spectrum there for sure. And I think what he's doing too with, you know, the altruism, it's kind of, you know, amending for his past, you know, that's, I'm old, I'm not in the game anymore. And, you know, I, I respect that a great deal. And there was a, a page 598, he wrote a poem to the children, the children of his tribe, which at first I was like, this dude had 12 illegitimate children. Like, why is he writing poems about, you know, but then I was like, he's old and he's reflecting on how important these kids are. And, um, but it was also very tied into the tribe as well. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's almost like he had some kind of spiritual experience and, and, you know, was trying to give back for, you know, time lost. And that was my interpretation. I was wondering if you would agree with that. I think so. And yeah, I mean, his, so he has many children, but I don't know that he would call them illegitimate necessarily, but he, uh, has a very large family, um, but he <laughs> it's like nfl style family you're talking like, about sean camp yeah lots of kids <laughs> different people that's all not illegitimate but um but yeah i think he he sees 
it's kind of the point of like growing up too quickly. It's like the idea that I think he finally like caught a breath later in life. And so now he can like look back historically, but not only historically, like look forward and understand maybe how he could help people younger than him dodge some of the missteps that he took. Do we have time? Yeah, you got time. Uh, regardless of, of cultural and ethnic background, he's, he's a hustler to the, to the bone. Did you, did you have trouble trusting him sometimes forging a, a relationship of trust? Honestly, no. I mean, I was a little nervous the first time I met him, but we kind of like hit it off right away. But yeah, he's definitely a hustler. I mean, we'll be sitting in the Freeway Cafe, which is his favorite diner, and he'll just be like, oh boy, Michael, you wouldn't imagine the cash that moves through this place. <laughs> <laughs> so you still got, still got the head on a swivel, you know. Yeah. Uh-huh. Cash businesses. Michael, just one last thing before we close up. This is a, an interesting story of a, of a marginal figure. How many other people like Bobby Blue Jacket do you think are out there that we just don't get to hear about at all? Oh, I mean, tons. I think what's interesting is, like, he's obviously an extraordinary guy, highly charismatic. Like I said, his life is unique. But um, what's interesting is that I think everyone kind of is like that to a certain extent. Very good. Everybody's got their own story, and they're, some of them are crazy. Some of them are not. Like, this guy, Mike, and I know his story's bananas. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, folks... <laughs> You guys have been listening to I-94, live from Pilsen Community Books. This is the book, Bobby Blue Jacket, The Tribe, The Joint, The Tulsa Underworld. I'm cracking up over here. Michael P. Daly, come on, give it up. Thank you so much. We'll be back next month, last Thursday of the month. Thank you so much for coming, everybody. Thank you. is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured the work of Michael Daly, author of Bobby Blue Jacket, out now from first to knock. The episode was recorded in front of a live studio audience on March 29th at Pilsen Community Books and first aired on April 1st, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.